Hi, I'm Claudia, and you're listening to The Brain and Brand Show, where you'll hear science and inspiration from guests like neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart. Hey guys, welcome to The Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice. I'm so excited to welcome back Emily Willingham, a penis scientist who has shifted her focus to study the brain. And she has a new book out called The Tailored Brain, From Ketamine to Keto to Companionship, A User's Guide to Feeling Better and Thinking Smarter. Emily is one of the most balanced, deep thinkers I've come across when it comes to human behavior. She's based out in Northern California. If you scroll back through the podcast feed, you'll find a previous conversation about her study of the penis, not just humans, but across the animal kingdom, and how her research reveals a powerful truth about how we can begin shifting our thinking to pursue gender equality. Thanks so much for choosing this episode, and please rate the show and comment. It makes a huge difference to how the podcast is promoted on Apple and Spotify and other platforms. Now, meet Emily Willingham. Enjoy. Emily Willingham, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to have you back. Congrats on your latest wonderful book, The Taylor Brain. How did you go from researching the penis to the brain? Well, when I was finishing my penis book, and there's actually a theme that runs through it that, you know, we tend to focus on this one body part and try to define people in various ways based on its presence or absence and its size. Let's face it, that seems to be kind of an obsession as well. And, you know, when instead, (laughs) right, when instead, you know, I think it would behoove us to focus more on our brains and, you know, what defines us in that sense. And so I land on that sentiment at the end of fallacy, and then I take it and run with it in the tailored brain. Awesome. Well, you seem to really poke fun at the brain boosting neuro hype out there, and you do it with such... I mean, I, you know, having interviewed you already, I really enjoyed reading the book because your personality comes through. This is definitely not ghostwritten. <laughs> Thank you. I think. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, because you, you're very sharp and witty. And I really enjoyed how you, you know, poke fun almost at a lot of the kind of quick fix neuro hype. Why was that important to you? You know, it became important to me. I, I, I hope that and just beyond poking fun at them, which I kind of confessed to having done, you know, and also <laughs> I hope, I hope in a way that punches up because I think, you know, people genuinely do want to try to find something they, you know, they think or they've been told or it's been implied to them that they need to do something about their brains. And so they're uncomfortable with themselves. And I think, you know, my biggest hope was to, for people not to be led astray by the claims that are being made in some quarters, especially I think in the wellness sphere about what we can do for our brains. So that was, that was the aim. <laughs> was and you do, <laughs> Emily, you do punch up. I mean, you're not condescending at all. A lot of times right. <laughs> when people are challenging, you know, certain science, I mean, even in the replication crisis, there's a lot of people who are really sort of taking this moment to like, like you say, punch down at scientists. And I do think people have the best interest at heart. People are just trying, like you said, to people are just trying to figure out a better way. And sometimes life gets busy and tough. And um, 
I think we are all guilty, you know, especially in the work that I do sharing science that, you know, if something is compelling you quick to jump and go, Hey, I want to share this. So I appreciate the even handed way, you know, by bringing your personality through and having a lot of fun while also inspiring people to think. I, I appreciated that in the read. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. I appreciate your saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, though. I, like I said, in our previous interview, I kind of got a sense of your personality, um, just in the fact that you really care about this stuff. You're not just researching this topic just to do it. You genuinely do care. I do. I have a really strong sense of caring. I maybe don't come across that way sometimes, like on social media and things like that. But I do. Yeah. I have a really, really strong sense of caring. And I really care that people don't don't get led astray and don't waste their time or their money and really precious resources on things that aren't going to work for them. Yeah. Tell us, let's, let's unpack your planet brain. Tell us a little bit more about the frame in a planet brain. So the, the, the thing with brains and the, 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 the research that we do and the studies is that we often have so many different names for things and the names can consist, you know, the terms can consist of two or three kind of long Latinate words. And you know, it just really kind of almost gets sort of wearying to try to think about it and to think about where things are. And then there's also this conceptualization of the brain as something that's wired. And yes, there's electrical communication among a set of cells in the brain, but they only make up about half the cells in there. And so I thought it was important to try to use some kind of construct that would orient people to where things are in the brain and also get across this idea that there are tons of other cells in there that are not electrical. It's not wired and they're all interacting as well. I felt like a map of a planet was maybe a way to go about that. So people could spatially kind of follow along and see and even maybe feel where they are as we talk about the different parts of the brain. Super. You know, in our previous conversation, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to that interview. <laughs> you know, we spoke a little bit about the fact that you have uh, children. And I want to imagine you were a teenager and you were sitting down with your children. <laughs> what is it about this book that you think you guys should be speaking about at that age? If you were adolescents, I like that you asked me that because my next um, book or the, what I'm going to propose has to do with adolescence. And one of the things I was hoping people would interrogate in this book, and I, I would like to think I had some level of wisdom like this as a teenager, but I'm, you know, I do think I was busy. I largely was kind of being myself because I didn't have good constructs for being anything else. And I think that when people look at this book, I hope it encourages them to ask, why they think they want to change something. Is that coming from something inside of them that says, you know, you've got an issue or is that coming from outside and being imposed on them? And those are two different things and you would have two different responses to those. Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons I think solitary confinement in prison is one of the worst punishments you can get is the nutritional value you get from engage in a delightful soul, right? Mm -hmm. The ability to have a wonderful conversation and a smile and so forth. You really make the case for the power of your social cognition. Uh, can you just unpack that a bit more? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I 
am not an especially wildly social person. I like to be alone a lot of the time, but <laughs> but I do have my beloveds, right? And the people with whom I do like to spend time and enjoy it. And so, you know, I'm not saying go out and party every night and that's going to be super healthy for you. But what I found is it's just a whole lot of evidence that suggests that, as you say, we know this. I mean, just by the fact that we impose that punishment on people is one of the worst things you can do, right, is to isolate someone. We know that intrinsically. And then I, in the book, I introduce a lot of data that show that it improves us in a lot of facets to have people, you know, our ride or die people whom we can trust, we can share things with, we can resonate with is how I describe it in the book, because you get into sync physiologically, apparently some evidence suggests with people when you're with them Mm -hmm. and you offload burdens with each other, you share burdens, right? And you share joys and you share lots of things that can burden your brain if you have to keep it to yourself. Let's talk a little bit about some before and after. So oftentimes, as you know, like, there's a lot of skepticism. It's like, you know, why am I reading this? Why, why another book, you know, on the brain? There's so much good, you know, content out there. For somebody who's like, look, I've got a stack of books. Why should I get to yours first? What would you say to them? I think people would be surprised at what they find. They're not going to find quick fixes. Those don't exist. They haven't been uncovered yet, if they're even out there at all. I think that people will learn, hopefully, in a in a positive way, that the tools that they need to do nips and tucks that they decide they need for their brains are available to them and free. <laughs> they can access them pretty freely and use them to whatever extent works best for them. Did the did you start writing this before the pandemic or in it? I, you know, that's a, I really got into the writing and the research as the pandemic started. And so I was working like up to my years in it throughout the first year of the pandemic. And I have to say that what I was discovering through my research was really helpful to me and kind of trying to cope with what was going on around me. You know, in the book, I address anxiety and stress. I think we all recognize those were aspects of the pandemic. And I um, address mood. And I address kind of trying to maintain in the moment and the evidence base for how well that helps with some of these things. I started using it as I went along. There were things that I adopted. Yeah. While I was doing that, I think kind of really genuinely helped me stay upright and able to keep working and to reach for purpose. Awesome. You know, is this, are these conversations tough for you? You mentioned earlier that, you know, you're not the most sort of like outgoing in that way. You're not the party starter. Um, I guess this is the first time I've even, I've even thought about it. You know, we're so quick when we interview people to just jump into a conversation without checking in. <laughs> is, you know, are you, you know, how does this feel? Is these, are these conversations a little bit painful? You can be honest with me. No, no, not at all. So when I say I just I'm not somebody who derives a lot of like some people, I think they interact with a lot of other people and they get a lot of energy from it. 
And I'm somebody who kind of needs to get inside my own head and have like not a lot of in, like sensory inputs for long periods of time, but okay. it doesn't mean that I can't <laughs> handle this. I like this kind of thing because you get to talk about things that interest you, right? Or to me, yeah. I mean, interest me. And um, that's enjoyable to me to try to unpack stuff and get ideas from the people with whom I'm speaking. I love that. Sure. Thank you. So, yeah. you know, one of the things that moved me was, you know, coming from America, but now living in a society where, you know, it's why, you know, the, the collectivism is the dominant sort of social paradigm and philosophy and having traveled to the East quite a bit. How do you think the book will be received in the West versus? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think that, you know, Westerners maybe would find some of it almost coming across as, I mean, it just depends on which kind of Westerner you are, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) yeah, I emphasize the value of social interaction, the value of telling stories and the value of art as a medium for telling stories. And I think that's something that can be universally appreciated, but some of the practices arise from non-Western cultures. And so people from you know, non-Western culture probably will more readily recognize some of the things that are described in there, like the mindfulness practices and that sort of stuff, yeah. because Westerners yeah. lifted those, <laughs> right? Um, and there may be a stronger affinity, you know, depending on your cultural background for some of those those things in the book. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. We I'm doing a little bit of work with some clients in India, uh, Kuwait, um, and I do think it's going to be interesting to see. You never know, but I'm, you know, I'm going to share this to those networks. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, I was particularly moved by, you know, being able to think beyond myself and to think about how, you know, the, you know, some of the decisions I can make and, and impact the collective and what can that do for us? Was there a particular moment where that was? Would that struck you, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that where it really sank in is when I was writing about storytelling and how when we access stories, whether, you know, it's through art that's 20,000 years old or reading a book that somebody wrote or, you know, or reading a story online, that it is an engagement of, between two brains. And to have that engagement successfully, you have to kind of get inside the head of the other person and make predictions about where they're going with the story and what does the author intend and what's distinct between the person telling the story and the characters in the story being activated as separate entities in the story. And it becomes this really interesting human practice that other species don't do. And we time travel. We can connect with people who lived thousands of years ago this way. And I was just really struck by how human that is to be able to do that. Yeah, the empathy thread just sort of is woven throughout the book. And and I feel is that if people slow down after reading this book and just think that what I'm doing, what I'm saying, how I'm coming across is influencing the other person's brain. I mean, (laughs) the way you opened up the book by saying that the fact that I'm reading this, I'm engaging, we engage each other's brain was just so beautiful. You know, what are what are one or two things that if people adopt this, they could potentially accomplish that you could not accomplish if you're solely more focused on yourself? I think that you 
it, re, it rebounds on you, right? And so one of the goals that people think they have is that they're going to get this kind of global improvement in their brains and function and mood and stress and anxiety and all those kinds of things. But one of the things I found that actually does have a global effect is this interaction, is practicing empathy, is practicing perspective taking, putting yourself in the other person's shoes, because I think that helps you make sense of the world. And when we can make sense of the world a little better, we feel less uncertainty, we feel less anxiety, and we feel less stress. So it's a 360 degree benefit from that. You know, you, the brain's moods, I mean, the way you sort of round the curve towards, um, you know, the latter part of the book, you dive into something I feel that is extremely important on so many levels. I have two mentees that have suffered depression. Mm-hmm. You know, you, this was a, for me, some of it was a little controversial, especially the work around ketamine and so forth. What, what, which, what research did you dive into that gave you the confidence to share this? There's, it's interesting because if you look at prescription antidepressants, right? The ketamine, as ketamine is one of the few things in the book I looked at that is a prescribed thing, you know, that's FDA approved for, for some conditions. Um, I was trying to look mostly at things people could access without that. Cause there are lots of books about okay. these other things, but if you look at antidepressants, you know, they, they on average work about 50% of the time, which suggests some kind of binary, like for some people, it may just, they may not be very effective. And for some people they are, you know, they do offer the benefit. And if you look at what, you know, as the as ketamine treatment does for people, to get to that, and this is very U.S. centric, but to get to that here, you have to quote unquote fail like half a dozen yeah. antidepressants, you know, all of which largely work through one or two of <laughs> the same mechanisms, but you have to go through those first. In the meantime, you're dealing with a depth of a mood condition, right? That's intractable yeah. to those. And I, one of the reasons I wanted to focus on that was to highlight it as out there and really effective for a lot of people who are experiencing these intractable conditions. Awesome. You know, when I think about a book like this and the power of creativity, I feel like to solve some of the world's most pressing problems, you know, we need to step stop or consider stop pointing the finger so much at each other and blaming each other and come together and create things. Right. And I know that sounds like utopia or whatever, but <laughs> for me, for me, the, the power of creativity is a really big part of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you become more creative? I, I am a really creative person. And I realized when I was writing that part that I have, I've put that to the side a lot because I've been too busy when you're busy, right? You have too much to do. You don't have room to just let your mind wander, which is a key element of kind of a divergent form of creativity. And I have been trying to make like deliberately make time for that so that I can experience it more because I love it so much. It feels great to create. It's so enjoyable. And the other thing I want to mention, because you just brought this up, is you know another kind of form of creativity is this convergent form where there's a problem to solve and you bring a lot of minds to solving it and they converge on trying to solve this problem and they may come at it in so many different ways. And in a way, that's kind of another way to practice 360 degree perspective taking, right? To circle a problem like that and come at it through all those different routes. 
you know, that makes me think about, you know, this global conversation around inclusion. Are you getting a lot of calls for people to, for it to speak about inclusion at conferences and workshops no, and so forth? Um, I'm not, and I maybe not am not the most appropriate person to do that. I think that there's space for people who have a lot of expertise in that and who have life experience that lends itself to that. You know, my life experience yeah. is, you know, I grew up as a girl and a woman and we have been excluded, you know, in a lot of ways, but I feel like there are lots of people who have tons more expertise in life experience that would be better choices for that, but you can sure. have me if you like, <laughs> I don't want to exclude <laughs> myself completely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of my big arguments is that the inclusion conversation is approached in many cases, the starting point is the wrong point. I think we need to start by helping people understand the brain and helping understand why people appreciate in-groups so much and then how to think about developing out-group engagement by understanding the brain. And if if you have that conversation alone, you're probably going to have far more success than just sort of, you know, just sharing this group's background, this group's background, you know, and just... One of my big frustrations, Emily, is when you have a you have you have a workshop and then you have a black guy and a white guy, and that's supposed to mean <laughs> this inclusion thing can work just because these <laughs> right. two. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what you might find interesting is a study I just covered for Scientific American that looks at overestimations of minority populations. And it's a brain thing. It starts with a cognitive reflex. We just notice what is uncommon to us. We just alert on that. And then we move to what you just talked about, which is that in-group identity. And because it's uncommon to us, we tend to overestimate its presence uh, paradoxically. And so we overestimate the presence of minority populations. And then evidently that results in less support for diversity programs because the overestimation yeah but it starts like, with a uh, cognitive reflex <laughs> have, have, have you published this it, i think it's coming out probably it may publish today at scientific okay. american yeah so i can send right, you i'll look out for it it's a really okay, interesting cool. study yeah all right well we got a couple more minutes let's talk about some starting points if somebody orders this book as soon as they finish this conversation which i hope they do While they're waiting for it, what are two or three things they can start right now to start tailoring their brain? And now I guess almost goes against what we started out with. And I'm not looking for quick fixes, but how can they put themselves in motion to start tailoring their brain? One of those, did you just say in motion? Because that's one of them. Um, Physical activity (laughs) is important. As, as such an important factor and not in like an imposed, like you must get on the treadmill 30 minutes a day kind of way, but just any kind of physical activity to the level of which you're capable, just, you know, a few minutes a day, 15, 20 minutes a day, it creates a buffer. It, it helps you. It's sort of a physical practice of resilience, which helps your brain as well. Your body corrects every time you incur little injuries from being physically active, your body learns how to deal with that. And it gets kind of a habit of correcting that and bringing you back to a normal state. And in addition, of course, when you're moving around, you get oxygen to your brain. You actually are maybe promoting um, production of molecules that help you make fresh brain connections. 
And so that's one of the yeah. most accessible things is just to get some physical activity in. It doesn't have to be a ton. Awesome. You got to give us at least one more before we wrap up. Okay, sure. Um, uh, <laughs> another one. <laughs> another one is yes, engage with people whom you trust, the people whom you love and trust, and share with them. Don't be, you know, reluctant to do yeah. that because you know we're all there to kind of mirror one another's emotions and share burdens with each other. That's a very human necessity. Well, Emily. You know, as how long has this book been out again? It published in December of 2021. December. Mm-hmm. Yeah, December. Well, I really wish you the best as you continue to roll this out and share it to the entire world. I feel extremely grateful to be following you on Twitter because <laughs> I do like your Twitter personality as well. Thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really, I really appreciate it. I wish you the best and all the best to your family as well. And Thank I so look much, forward sir. to the next conversation. Great. Cool. Thank you again. This was fun. Take care. Okay. You too. Thanks so much for listening and do share this episode with someone who wants to feel better and think smarter. Until next time.